Liam Bullock, Buenos Dias. How are you? Buenos Dias, Johnny. Que tal? Yeah, bueno. Uh, mucho bueno. <laughs> um, porque um, it's very sunny. It's scorchio in Watford. It's uh, Well, it's drizzling now. Um, but it is oh. uh, very nice. We found ourselves on a cold and wet Tuesday morning in Watford talking about Stoke City. You've got a book coming out called Twinned with Reykjavik and this will go out on Bank Holiday Monday, the date of release. So 20 years after the start of the events, what, how do you think this book is going to be received by various Stokies? So it's an interesting time for most Stokies who lived it. Part of the reason I wrote the book was to try and figure out, well, was it a successful time for Stoke or was it a bit of a failure? The Icelandic came in at the end of um, 1999. They had big plans for the club. Premier League football, we're going to make money. We're going to push Icelandic football into a new era and we're going to make Stoke City this global brand. And, well, that didn't happen. And along the way, a lot of crazy things did happen, which the board were highly responsible for. But at the same time, it was really exciting. It was a bit of an adventure. There were a lot of failures along the way, but there were also successes. So some might look back on it and say, oh, wow, yeah, that was really fun. That was a great time. And others might think, oh, I'm not sure if I want to relive those moments. But I think generally Stoke fans who lived it will appreciate reading up about it. Those that didn't live it, the younger generation, well, have heard a lot about it, maybe in patches, different parts, you know, certain managers, certain incidents. Hopefully this will give them a run through from start to finish with a bit of colour along the way from fans and players and the media that, that did experience it. This is a book that ties in the legacy fans and the children. So people who will have grown up on Boyan, Shakiri, uh, Ryan Shawcross, that era of Stoke will look back on the seven years, 1999 to 2006, that a guy called Gunnar Gislason um, fronted the takeover after Stoke were relegated to the third tier. And this is the early years of what became the Bet365 stadium. It was the Britannia and always will be the Britannia. Interestingly, you uh, are of a very similar age to me, I think, early 30s? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, You followed Stoke home and away in the first season at the Britannia but you do remember going to the Victoria ground what was your feeling about being there at the end of one era of a football club this stadium which had hosted well it was probably the most popular stadium in Britain because of who the star was in the 40s 50s 60s yeah and growing up um, my family my mum my my dad my brother my older brother David big Stoke City fans of course and you would hear stories of Sir Stanley Matthews in the 50s and then later in the 70s when we were actually a pretty decent team as well. I wasn't born until 88, so my first initiations into Stoke were mid-90s, I guess, in the Lou Macari era, um, when we were a pretty decent team, I guess. Not too dissimilar to where we are now, in fact, a mid-table championship hoping to, to kick on and, and get promoted. My earliest memories were of the Victoria ground, not really old enough to appreciate all the the big moments and, and even the, the more recent times um, under Lou Macari, but I certainly remember it. Um, we used to stand on the, the Boovan paddock, which was sort of on the halfway line next to the dugout. So we'd converse with, you know, Lou and his, his assistant, Chick Bates, 
Neil Baldwin, Nello, who was the, the kit man who you, you've definitely heard of. I remember being immersed by it all and sort of the smell of cigarettes and whiskey-laced coffee and, and being up against the wall. It was, it was sort of, it's nostalgic to think back on that, but it wasn't until we moved to the Britannia Stadium that I sort of understood where the club was, where it was coming from, where it was going, and, and sort of understood football in a bit more wider context as well about like our position in English football and who our rivals were and, and things like that. I didn't see the Neil Baldwin docudrama. I think Toby Jones was a phenomenal casting because he looks a lot like him. Uh, this yeah. is a character with um, mental impairments and he was the kit man. Yeah, and he was, he was a character that, just such a nice man. Everybody loved him. He, he dressed up as a clown occasionally as well because that was his um, background as a, being a clown. And he, Lou Macari just loved him and said, this guy is our kit man and all the players loved him and you should watch the documentary because it's just it's such a heartwarming uh, movie slash documentary I guess um, of of a man that you just don't see a lot of in football anymore particularly in this more cynical money-driven social media-driven world that we live in he was also um, a big figure around the university I went to Mm. I went to Keele University which is just outside of Stoke and you'd often see him sat outside student union or in, in the cafe or whatever and he'd always touch up um, chat to you and he'd treat you like he knew you like he was your best friend and I think he does that with everybody and, and because of that everybody loves him that's wicked and of course the script and the movie Marvellous are in the football library and we induct your book Twinned with Reykjavik on the library shelves the book is Twinned with Reykjavik Stoke City FC the Icelandic years 1999 to 2006 you do mention authors pertaining to Stoke City you're helping me tick off Stoke as I do the 92 is it Simon Lowe who is the one who gets a lot of name checks yeah Simon Lowe's done a lot of work on the history of Stoke City he worked with Stanley Matthews as well just before his passing so Simon is one of the first people I I got in contact with um, this is my first ever Stoke City book, my first ever book, and uh, you know it was it was all uncharted territories for me. Well, he didn't put me in touch with Pitch, but he recommended Pitch Publishing to me and gave me a few contacts to talk to along the way. And Simon Simon's a great guy. I'm very thankful that he was. He took a lot of time out to help me. This um, book, like a lot of people I've spoken to, the book is on Pitch, uh, who published all the best books. There's one that's not going to be so good. It's about the FA Youth Cup. Uh, and I'm writing that, but I'm trying not to talk <laughs> about it. Uh, will I be able to write about Stoke City's under-18s at all? Did they ever win the Youth Cup? No, they've had a bit of a resurgence in the last few years. Um, at least in my time being a Stoke City supporter, we've seldom had anyone come through the youth system, and we've not really put much attention to it. But in the last couple of years, we've had a few players come through the um, the youth system, the under-21s. We had a player make his debut in our last game actually Will Forrester who um, he scored on his debut in the last game of the season and he's been with the club since he was 12 I think something like that so under Michael O'Neill we're starting to, to give the kids a chance so let's see um, let's see what you come across in your research it's a very good appointment Michael O'Neill and I wonder do you expect rather than Stoke Alona under Mark Hughes do you think you'll get kind of um, old Stoke S-T-O apostrophe K-E, that you'll get lots of Ulstermen coming in. Yeah, I mean, we're already planning our pre-season trip to Northern Ireland, which Good. is um, 
Cup archive and the Cologne Cup and other exotic places that we used to play in. But um, we, we seem to be focusing a lot on the Scottish um, market as well, which Michael O'Neill has worked a lot of his career in. So we have this habit at Stoke of flipping from one extreme to the other, like from these Icelandics to a Tony Pulis regime to Mark Hughes wanting to sign former uh, Champions League winners now back to this sort of well let's see let's see what's out there in the in the good old British market well actually I'll ask about Peter Coates and is it Debbie Coates very shortly but um you work as a geologist which is the correct pronunciation uh of geologist uh Roxon shit what how has your year been I moved out to Spain because my wife's Spanish and we'd lived in the UK for around five or six years and she was feeling a bit homesick and now I'm not going to turn down a chance to move to Spain. Um, we moved here in March of last year, about a week before lockdown number one in Spain. So I came out here all excited, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, Barcelona, a big, thriving international city. And by the time I'd unpacked my bags, everything was closed. We weren't allowed outside before 8pm unless it was to go to the shop or hospital. There's nowhere to go, can't meet new people. I'm fortunate that with my job, I was in a way, preparing to work from home because, just as I said, I was moving out here, but I was still working for the University of Oxford at the time. So the move didn't affect me work-wise. It's been a bit of a slog, but I, I'm not going to complain. People have had it worse off than me, so uh, I've got by. And if I were to go on to JSTOR, will I, will, I able, will I be able to read some L. Bullock pieces? Oh, yeah, I think... Um, It'd be great. Nobody, uh, hopefully some people will read my book, but I don't think many people read my scientific publications. But there, yeah, there's, there's, there's a dozen or so out there of tales of rocks from here and there. What's your doctorate in? Uh, volcanology. Ah, brilliant. Which, which is fascinating. Because, so were you all over F. Lili- ah, that's the, that's the link, isn't it? F. Liliocle. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I F. Yellow Yakutla, yes. Yes the ash cloud eruption in 2010. And at that time, I was actually... I'd, I'd moved out to Mexico for six months to work on a volcano. Um, I moved to um, a Pacific state called Colima, where Mexico's most active volcano is. So I moved halfway across the world to find an active volcano. And then I found out that half of Europe was covered in ash from, yeah. from an Icelandic eruption. So, yeah, but that's, uh, that's where my link to Iceland personally comes from. I, I visited the country... In 2008, I saw some of the beautiful volcanoes and glaciers and just an amazing country, just a beautiful natural landscape, land of fire and ice. Matt McGinn wrote that book, Against the Elements, which you may have read, published by Pitch. Yeah, I've seen those. He's in Spain as well, because he's doing a doctorate on uh, sporting fanatics in, I think, Galicia. I think he's near Valencia. Oh, Uh, well, if he's in Galicia, that's... um just north of Portugal. My wife's from the next province over, Asturias, so maybe, you know, maybe our paths will cross. Absolutely. Um, The Venn diagram of um, Icelandic football fans who have written books in the English language. Uh, Don't worry, we will move off of volcanoes. Uh, (laughs) I like talking about volcanoes. So um, uh, is there a kind of Oxbridge, Stoke City social club? Yeah, I've been to scientific conferences before where I've heard somebody doing a talk and, and the, the accents jump straight out at me. I'm like, that person's from Stoke or <laughs> somewhere close to Stoke-on-Trent. So there is a, a very small community of volcanologists from Stoke-on-Trent, um, which is as far away from an active volcano as you can probably get. I but knew, I knew do, someone. Do exist. 
I knew someone from Stoke on Trent, Heather Davies, whom you, well, you may know Heather Davies. No? Doesn't ring a bell, no. no. It's good to play Do You Know. Uh, she's just uh, left the BBC, She, or rather independent production companies working for the BBC, produced Johnny Walker and Claudia Winkleman, but has three little children, uh, but her accent is very much Middle England, Stoke. Um, so it's lovely to hear these familiar vowel sounds and that you've written this book, uh, Twins with Reykjavik. 1999, I knew Stoke City existed. Um, I was a Watford fan, and we will talk a lot about players who share Watford and Stoke heritage. Um, but I just wanted to talk about that 98-9 season, which I think is... Great, great first half and then an atrocious second half. So you had the agony and the ecstasy in a whole season, which probably set you up for life. Yeah, I mean, when you say you knew that Stoke existed, I mean, that was at one point about all we managed to do in that period. We'd, we'd come down from the championship. It was called Division One at the time. Pretty spectacular style, along with Manchester City uh, a year or so earlier. We started the season, we appointed Brian Little as manager, which at the time was seemed like a good appointment. He had name value. Everyone knew his time at at Aston Villa. And we started like a house on fire. The first game, we were something like two or three nil up against Northampton. And Stoke fans were singing, we're only here for the season. Kind of tongue-in-cheek, I guess. But at the same time, you know, "Ah, we'll we'll piss this league. And then we just collapsed spectacularly uh, after Christmas. And Brian Little's heart wasn't in it. The board, they wanted out. So Peter Coates' first reign as chairman, they were looking for a way out or no interest in sort of backing the club in any large capacity. And yeah, we, we slid down to mid-table. I guess it was sort of similar to what Ipswich went through, um, was it last season yeah. when they went down and started really well and then didn't even make the playoffs? We, we did that and we, we were heading nowhere at that time. Then in um, 1999, we appointed Gary Megson. He came in, he started pretty well. We were sort of in and around the playoffs by about November 99, and that's when the Icelandic takeover happened, and that's when everything changed. Mm-hmm. Which you document in this book, which had... Uh, did you write it out in Barcelona? Yeah, I started it, like most of these, probably people you talk to who write books from fan point of view, so it started as a bit of a vanity project. started because I'd heard um, a Stoke City podcast, which is called The Wizards of Drivel, where they'd started to document... Stoke City years from right from the beginning, right from 1863. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. I thought, what would be interesting to me? And it would be the time that I was sort of getting into watching Stoke City, which is the Icelandic years. And yeah, with lockdown, there wasn't much else to do except work. But even that was coming to the end of my fixed term contract. Play Mario Kart, I guess, mm-hmm. and write a book. Why not? I mean, I'm miles away from home. Football had stopped at that point. There weren't even games behind closed doors at the time. It was just completely... Nothing was happening every Saturday. Um, it was a nice chance to go back and relive some some happy and some not so happy memories, and 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 do the research, put it all together in in a sequential order, and talk to people and find some interesting little stories along the way. So that's kind of how it came to be. Tell me about Freddie Steele. So Freddie Steele was a local hero for Stoke-on-Trent and I say Stoke-on-Trent because he also um, played a managed Port Vale as well at one point he scored a lot of goals for Stoke by the time he retired he um, was getting into management this was in the 1940s by the way and 
he went out to Iceland to manage some of their teams, um, some of their um, league teams. I mean, it was a fledgling league at the time. It wasn't obviously anything approaching professional. He went out there and he ended up being Iceland's first national team manager. He took, he took them to um, a couple of games, I think, against Denmark, their first ever international game before he came back to the UK. And his, his opinions of the, the country were, OK, it's in its infancy, but there's a real passion out here and there's a real desire to be a recognised footballing nation and they'll get there. And he was right, they did get there. And even at the start of the, the 90s when Stoke were forming their real relationship with Iceland, Icelandic people believe that they have the capabilities to do anything and conquer the world. And, you know, they think they, they thought, well, then we'll take over Stoke City and they'll become the biggest team in, in the league, in the country. They have a lot of ambition. And, and we've seen that, you know, they're the smallest nation to ever make the World Cup. So Is it smaller than Stoke? Right. What's bigger, Stoke or Iceland? I think the greater Potteries area is bigger than Iceland. So if you include the nearby town of Newcastle under Lyme, mm-hmm. Stoke and Newcastle are bigger than the population of Iceland, yeah. Ah. And I would love to see uh, a film, well, the, the, the marvellous story. Uh, I suppose, uses Stoke as a setting. But the f- the story of Fire Saga, which helped me through the first few weeks of lockdown, showed Iceland in a very good light. Uh, and, of course, I'm a big fan of Dathy, uh, who may well, by the time this goes out, have won Eurovision for Iceland. <laughs> I don't know if you'll be following Eurovision in Spain. I don't know if it's as big a thing over there as it is over here. Yeah, they like it over here. I don't know whether it's... Um... Yeah, I think there's quite a similar sort of enjoy it for what it is it's it's all a bit silly and a bit a bit of fun have a few parties if we're allowed to of course um yeah it's followed um i guess i'll be part of the the bandwagon of don't vote for the british (laughs) please it's a good song he's a nice bloke uh this goes (laughs) out on the 31st of may which is a bank holiday here i guess you'll be working uh, oh no, because it's a. Will the University of Oxford be open? I suppose it is because you're a, a researcher. You don't I think, take. Um, uh, I, I think we're allowed to, but I might. I might dabble in some some work, but um, yeah, the universities recognise the bank holidays, so there won't be any kind of administrative duties to do. At least you will, however, be promoting this book, which is out as you listen to it today. Are you going on the Wizards of Drivel? Podcast? Are you doing any fan-based promotion? Uh, the Wizards haven't asked me, um, so if any of them are listening, you can please feel free to. Last night I spoke to Ben Rowey at the uh, YYY Files. His podcast uh, interviews Stoke City fans and their backstories and anything of interest that, that they want to talk about. So for me, it was obviously the book. And I wrote a short article for um, our fanzine uh, called Doc Magazine. Uh, which is a great read for for any fans, obviously mostly for Stoke City fans, but it's a real good footballing cultural read. And um, so it's Doc Mag. They they um, they release an issue every every month. And Bunny there was kind enough to give me an invite to to do a little write up on on what's to come from my book. Jolly good. Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm waiting for pitch if they want to throw anything my way um I'm, I'm just waiting for the call well i am i'm on two side quests this year as well as promoting big books and trying to get the holy trinity of simon cooper um david goldblatt and brian glanville and duncan hamilton it's a, a four the, the mount rushmore of football writers 
But uh, to try and speak to every author who's had a book, football book come out on pitch, I've, sp- I've spoken to about 130 people. I, no kidding, half of them are pitch authors, which is why I try and plug pitch publishing, Paul and Jane Camelin, as, um, as much as possible. So when did you finish the manuscript and how nervous have you been in the run-up to the release of this book? So if I started writing it around March, I, I had a first like a rough draft ready June, July, I think. And my first job was, okay, I'm going to send this to my dad. I'm going to send this to my brother. And I'm going to send this to my mate, Tommy, who's a Wolverhampton Wanderers fan so that I can get sort of that non-Stoke City perspective. And and it was a bit rough and ready because I hadn't really done any interviews by that point. And it came back and, you know, the the content was all there. And there's an interesting story, obviously, but it needed some, some decoration, some, some, colour to add to it, which is where the fans, the media, the players come into it. So all in all, I think I was probably done around October. By that point, pitch were on board and it started to become real. When I got the response from pitch publishing, because obviously I approached them and said, I've got this book, I'd like to get it published. I don't really want to do it myself because I don't know what I'm doing. To get a positive response to them was, first of all, not what I expected because in the scientific community, when we get reviews back on our scientific papers, they're usually covered in red ink and some nasty words. But this was a much nicer surprise. And after the, the euphoria, it started to sink in that, oh, I'm going to have to release this now. People are going to read it. And it's been a mixture of excitement and nervousness and unusual feeling for me. But I've had people tell me that they've ordered it, you know, people from all around the world and it's just really it makes my day here and things like that it really makes me happy do you know if you press control f how many times the word fans is mentioned um i don't well it's just because this is it's not a slight I think what the book is, it's a celebration of being a Stoke fan, much like that excellent book, She Stood There Laughing, which introduced me to the concept of Delilah as the anthem of Stoke City for no real reason, but bum, 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 you get that on the terraces. I've never been to the Britannia, especially on a Tuesday night. I would love to, but Watford have just been promoted. Um, but yeah, 269 mentions of fans. The, you, go, you chronicle the goings-on on and off the pitch, but omnipresent is young Liam Bullock because you were a teenager at the time uh, and dad and brother but I just want to laser in on one thing Uh, you admit to a crime uh, a crime of passion in this book do you know of what I speak this is one of the three El Ceramico games uh, against that lot from Burslem in 2000 yes I remember it um, vividly we played Port Vale in the I think it was the Northern section semi-final of the LDV Vans Trophy, you know, the big one, I guess. And we were losing for most of the game. So what happened is originally it was supposed to be at Vale Park and they failed pitch inspections on two consecutive weeks and at which point they changed the game to the Britannia Stadium. So it was a night match under the floodlights. Because it was the LDV Vans, it wasn't like a packed house, but there was still, you know, a a big crowd in to watch it, you know, 15,000, something like that. And we were losing most of the game. We equalised late on, and then we lost in extra time to a penalty, which Mark Bridge-Wilkinson scored. And at the time, they were doing this um, 
this gimmick where it was a golden goal, essentially. I don't know if it was a... Yeah, it wasn't the silver goal where you had to be winning at half-time. It was just straight-up golden goal. So they had the penalty, they scored it. On Rushall, the bench, Brian Horton was the Vale manager. They run over to the Vale end to celebrate. And I get up and I kick the chair in front of me and half of it just goes flying down flights and flights of stairs. And we quickly make our exit uh, before anyone realises that I did it and I get banned. Um, and I don't know if anyone ever noticed or if somebody came to their seat on the next Saturday and found half of it was missing. If so, I apologise. It was, like you say, a crime of passion. Yeah. No, that's that's certainly a microcosmic of what it is to be comp- so frustrated because you expend so much energy. Was Stoke City the biggest thing in your life? Or were volcanoes big in about 2000 in your life? No, volcanoes hadn't quite made it into my life at that point. Uh-huh. So, I mean, Stoke City were, were everything. Yeah, they were the lifeblood of the family. We will, uh, in the second half, we'll touch on the big Icelandic names and you can wrap your tongue around all this noise. <laughs> uh, but were you, if I say Stoke City nil, you will say Liverpool. Liverpool. Eight. Eight brackets, E-I-G-H-T. Nine. This is the <laughs> Liverpool team of Fow- uh, Gerard Houllier managing. That's right, yeah. yeah. Robbie Fowler, Jamie Carragher, Christian Ziegler, Vladimir Smitscher, Marcus Babel, Danny Murphy. What was worse, losing 8-0 to Liverpool or losing to Nuneaton Borough in the first round of the FA Cup? For me, losing to Liverpool was worse because there were no Nuneaton Borough fans in my high school. There were several Liverpool Air quotation fans um, that were just chomping at the bit to meet with me the next day at morning registration, coming in in their Liverpool knockoff jackets, and they gave me so much abuse for that. So, I mean, Nuneaton was definitely a bad one as well, and that was only a few weeks apart from the Liverpool Cup defeat. Uh, they were both really, really bad times to be a Stoke fan. The reason I said um, nine as well is because at one point the scoreboard lost count of how many goals Liverpool had scored and it was 9-0 on the board uh, and someone had to correct it. No, it's only eight. Don't don't be ridiculous. Yeah, keep score. I suppose I should end the first half on a high. Peter Coates and the Bet365 money. When in 2006 the Coates family bought the club back, were there recollections among fans that it had gone wrong before? Or do you think, and, and thus would go wrong again, or do you think that the, the Coates administration, with all the people around them, had the best interests of the club at heart and they really could pilot Stoke back up to the top division? There really were a lot of, there was a lot of apprehension about Peter Coates coming back in. As you say, his first uh, stint hadn't gone well. There was a lot of bad feeling, a lot of um, visible protests at the time in the late 90s, pitch invasions, you know, smashed windows and all that bad stuff. So, there was still a big hangover from that. And the other thing was his first task was to bring Tony Pulis back to the club. And Tony Pulis had left from his first spell under a bit of a dark cloud with the fans as well. He'd just taken us to our, one of our most boring seasons in the history of any team. It was called the binary season for us, where there were 17 games in a row which finished either nil-nil or one-nil. And it was dreadful to watch we'd become just the most boring team in the country maybe even beyond that so to have Coates back and to have Tony Pulis back 
they had to do a lot of work to win over the fans. And it, it didn't happen immediately, but you could see pretty quickly that we were heading in the right direction. And then obviously, you know, a year and a half later, we, we'd achieved something that we'd never achieved before, and that was promotion to the Premier League. And he was the king of Stoke-on-Trent at that point, and so was Tony Pulis.